Hi, welcome to Talking in Bed. My name is Jen, and today we will be reading Chapter 5 of Alice in Wonderland. Advice from a Caterpillar. There is discussion of drugs, and there is cursing in this episode. Hi, I'm Jen, and this is Talking in Bed, the podcast where I discuss niche interests, burning questions, movies, TV shows, foreign languages, and other sundry topics. If you like unfocused, opinion-based shows, then stick around. Hello, and welcome back to the show. Um, we're doing some, we're doing things a little different today. We're, um, I don't have any notes today. I, uh, I'm outside in a park because it's probably one of the last, like, warm days that we're gonna have. Uh, it's like 75 Fahrenheit. I don't know what that is in Celsius. I'm not good at that. But, you know, it's a, it's a nice day. It's late September. The light it's very strange because it's like late afternoon light, but it's only 1245 in the afternoon. So it's like midday, but the lighting is so different than it usually has been. And um, I'm recording this without a microphone. Like I'm just talking into my phone like I would if I was on a phone call because that was the best kind of that picked up my voice the best so that I wasn't like whispering or that it doesn't change my voice much. So we're just going to try this today (laughs) because uh, what I have found is that as I could have predicted and and did many times, if I had to write notes for it and then follow the notes, I really wasn't going, it was going to take me a long time to record stuff because that's just not how my brain works. I don't like I don't get excited by more organization, you know, (laughs) that doesn't make me feel like I'm in control of things. Um, I think I feel more attracted to it when I can just kind of talk off the cuff. So this will not be like a perfect episode, but guess what? (laughs) None of them are. So we're talking about uh, chapter five, advice from a caterpillar. So I think that um, again, this is like another big, iconic kind of character from Alice is the caterpillar. And um, the the funny thing is that this chapter has probably been the most exciting one for me. The first two chapters are always exciting because they're the start of the journey. And I really like... Um, the things that Alice has to say to herself and I like that Carol kind of pipes up a lot parenthetically in those first two chapters to give us little asides and little sarcastic remarks I really love that I miss his presence in the book at this point uh addressing us directly um I guess it's all (laughs) I guess it's all directed to us isn't it it's a story that we're reading but you know, where it really feels like the author is pulling you aside to say something. Uh, Chapters three and four were not, while I'm familiar with them and they're, you know, I, I like them, they're not that exciting for me, I think. Um, So this was a, this, 
gave me a lot of what I wanted, which is dialogue. And that is really coming through as like the strong point of Carol's writing for me is that he's very good at creating this kind of dynamic um, dialogue that's fun to read through. It's fun to read it out loud in the recording. And it's, um, it's just interesting to picture this girl having a conversation with a caterpillar and being, you know, the same exact size as the caterpillar also. And I really started to think about how um, the, the big appeal of this book uh, is the fact that it's such it's so surreal. It's, you know, it's dreamlike, of course, but it really feels like it's such an interesting mix of this person from like our reality, the reality at that time in the, in this just completely fictional and magical kind of world I know that's the I know that's the book but um I was just really struck by that and I think I I thought about that more because of something that happens later in the chapter so just uh I'm not even gonna read notes for the summary so in chapter four the previous chapter Alice uh went to the white rabbit's house and drank a little bottle and became really big. The whole chapter is about getting her out of the house. Eventually, uh, they throw some rocks into the window, the rabbit and his helpers. They turn into cakes. She eats them. She shrinks back down. She runs out of the house. She meets a big puppy. Uh, she manages to escape the puppy. And then... The chapter ends with her finding the caterpillar. Chapter five is truly just she talks to the caterpillar. Then she gets really big. She talks to a pigeon. She gets small again. And at the end of the chapter, she finds a little house. And she's just approaching the house. So um, in reading this, like, this chapter about the caterpillar, I... Um, I'm so, like, struck. I'm sitting near a soccer field, so if you hear, like, yelling or a fence being hit by a ball, that's why. I'm so... I'm really trying to, like, capture or put into words why this conversation between the caterpillar and Alice feels so... meaningful or insightful or profound maybe that I think I'm looking for the word profound it feels like there's something like biblical about this conversation that as readers we should be taking away some kind of deeper inner meaning about this conversation or what's driving this conversation and I don't know if that's because the caterpillar is such um, 
a well-known character. This conversation is so well-known that it has kind of taken on these um, biblical proportions in terms of its meaning in culture. Or if the conversation itself is that interesting. Um, Because the conversation starts out with, with the caterpillar asking, who are you? So that on its own, that feels like a very, um, uh, you know, (laughs) interesting question for anybody to answer, for a child to answer, you know. Uh, And before I get into that, I want to read the annotation on the question of who are you, which I thought was so interesting. Um, So apparently, uh, there's a there was a book published in 1841 by Charles McKay called Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds. And in the book, McKay talks about some catchphrases that sprang up in London suddenly. So we're, I'm guessing that this person, McKay, was talking about the early um, 19th century, early 1800s, maybe even the late 18th century, late 1700s. Uh, so one of the catchphrases was, who are you? Spoken with emphasis. <laughs> I got bugs all over me. On the first and last words, who are you? And um, he writes that it uh, suddenly sprang up like a mushroom. One day it was unheard, unknown, uninvented. The day, the next day it per- pervaded London. Every newcomer into an alehouse taproom was asked unceremoniously, Who are you? Um, so it's easy to assume that Carol would have been, you know, privy to that, that he would have had that yelled at him. Um, he... You know, I don't know if he was, like, living in London at that time, Oxford, where he was teaching when he was in contact with Alice, with the real Alice's family. Uh, They lived in Oxford also. So uh, it probably would have been out of style by then. But, um, you know, people still use kind of of out-of-style catchphrases to be funny you know so maybe that it maybe it would have just been a funny thing for readers they would have found it funny that the caterpillar was saying this out of style um phrasing uh now so this conversation between the two of them goes on for a while right it's it's kind of padded out by the you are old father william poem which i like i i enjoy that poem i think it's a nice it's a funny poem it holds up really well i feel uh and one of the things that makes this conversation between the two of them so special and interesting is that Up to this point, we've gotten a lot of Alice talking to herself. That's kind of where we've gotten the the most, we've gotten to know her the most through her talking to herself. We've seen her interact 
and speak with the animals of Wonderland directly, right? We've seen interactions. They're often really fraught interactions. There's tension there. Not always, not always, but um, often it's her kind of making faux pas, saying the wrong thing. Um, and, or kind of just not knowing how to, uh, deal with what they're saying, you know, or doing. I'm going to keep blowing away bugs that land on me. And, uh, but something that is a constant throughout is Alice trying to share, uh, to talk about Dinah with the animals. Dinah comes up in every chapter, right? Except for this one. And I think I can tell you why. It is because... I just killed an ant. Sorry, buddy. Uh, Alice, up until this point, has been trying to engage with the people of Wonderland on some kind of terms, like terms that she might, you know, are interesting for her. She's trying to be open with them, to share something that is really exciting for her, that makes her think of home, those kind of things. And none of the, always when she talks about Dinah, it scares people. It scares off the characters of Wonderland. They don't want to talk to her. It offends them. They go away. This is the first character who first of all, addresses her so directly that he actually wants to know who she is. You know, in the previous chapter, her kind of identity, her person, who she is as a person was so unimportant that the white rabbit called her Marianne and like thought she was his housemaid, you know. Uh, So who she was as a person is so meaningless. He's already seen her at least once that we know of that he kind of registered who she was, uh, which was in the Hall of Doors. She startles him and he scurries past. So we know that there's been some interaction. Um, It's like her identity is either scaring people or putting them off or uh, really unimportant. And now a character looks at her and says, who are you? And so in this and then she has no answer, which is really interesting. So um, it's like up until this point, she she hasn't been trying to tell the characters, the other characters about herself. She hasn't been trying to say what she thinks about things or, you know, how she feels about things. She's been trying to share, talk about her cat, who she loves. So she might think of herself, you know, you, Sometimes it's easy to think of who you are in the context of the people that you love, right? You understand who you are because you know what other people think of you or how you feel about them. And that gives you some idea of, well, I'm a loving person because I love my cat. You know, that doesn't necessarily tell you who you are. You know, it tells you who you love, you know. Um, so it's funny that when she is asked this really direct question, she does not have a good answer. She doesn't even say here, I'm a little girl or my name is Alice. She can't even come up with that. She says, I don't know. I, you know, I can't explain myself. I, I'm, 
she doesn't even say I don't know. She just keeps saying I can't explain it. I, I can't explain myself. So this is the first conversation, truly the first conversation that a character in Wonderland has had with her where they are specifically interested in who she is. Now, you can take it on surface value. He just wants to know her name. He just wants to know, like, where she's from. She can't even say, I'm from England. You know, it's nothing. No details are given, except that she's changed a lot. She's gone through a lot of changes, and she doesn't like those changes. That's the only uh, information that she can give. And that doesn't even tell us, that doesn't even tell her who he is, just that this is not her norm, right? That's, that's who she is in the context of Wonderland is outside of her comfort zone, outside of her norm. So I think that is why this feels so meaningful. Partly, I have other <laughs> theories, is because I think that in a more modern, like in a modern context, we don't always have people engage with us in such a direct way where people ask who are you and they want you to tell them something about you and not necessarily about the people you love or how you feel or what you do for work but who are you so that is very interesting and I think that I as a reader have been really wanting this kind of depth like a feeling of depth to these conversations and at least for chapters three and four I really was missing that chapter three most of all I missed it the most there and then chapter four uh, you know, somewhat less because we got more of Alice talking to herself. So here I'm getting this like really wonderful helping of seeing Alice kind of at a loss for explaining what is going on with her. Now, the other really interesting thing about this conversation and maybe this is something that you could take away from it, is the way the two of them interact. So uh, one of the things that is maybe a, maybe a plot hole, maybe intentional, is that up until this point, Alice is not very like anxious or put off or afraid by many things. She does get upset at times, but all things considered, considering that she's in this completely surreal world that is so unfamiliar to her, she's uh, shrinking down, she's growing tall. Um, it, all in all, she really kind of rides the wave pretty easily, and I've um, kind of... <sighs> what have I done? I've... <laughs> said, well, maybe it's because she's a kid. Kids don't always think about, you know, they don't think that far into the future. Right. Um, so maybe that's part of it. 
But here I felt like we just got really interesting. There's a nice breeze, but I don't know if that's recording that well. It might just sound really windy. Uh... So their interaction, the, the caterpillar is, as I said, very direct. He's not backing down. He really holds his own in the conversation, but so does she. She does not back down. One of the things that is so fascinating about this conversation is how much silence is in it. So, uh, right, let's just go through some of the dialogue who are you she says i hardly know you know i knew who i was when i got up this morning but i think i must have been changed several times since then it's so interesting she says that she knew who she was and she woke up this morning but she's changed several times since then um she hasn't changed you know like she still knows that she's her but her kind of understanding of um you know the thing the kind of knowledge that she knows from school the people that she knows uh you know the little kids that she knows from school those are also ways that she identifies herself right that's part of her identity so we already know that she uh i think in chapter two she kind of thinks, well, am I Mabel or am I Ada? I don't think I'm them, you know, but who am I? And if they tell me to come up again, I'll ask who I am first. Because she's obviously not her because uh, when she tries to say how doth the little or to repeat, you know, just recite a lot of um, kind of with the capital of this place, the capital of that place. And she gets it all wrong. It's all coming out wrong, right? So that also gives her this like, identity crisis where you know you can i you might identify yourself through the people that you love through how intelligent you are uh through your looks through what you um do but again <laughs> that doesn't really tell us who you are that tells us kind of the the knowledge you've accumulated in the world so who are you when those things are like not available to you you know who are any of us oh so i guess that's like why it feels so deep is because in the absence of those typical identifiers what do you really have you know what do you have so uh she says well i knew who i was when i got up i've changed several times since then he says what do you mean by that explain yourself and she says i can't explain myself because i'm not myself you see and he just says so she's being polite but certainly not um she's not just kind of coming up with any answer she's really sticking with i can't this this is where i am i can't do that for you that's not <laughs> something I'm able to do right now I can't explain it better and uh he doesn't say oh it's okay don't worry about it he says I don't she says um because I'm not myself you see just as an offhand like you you see and he says I don't see 
she very politely sticks with it. I, I can't explain it better. I've been many different sizes. It's very confusing. <laughs> and so the two of them, uh, it goes on like that. He says, it isn't. And she says, these are two really, what I found to be impressive moments. And this is like a child holding her own against what we assume would be the equivalent of like a grown <laughs> man, I guess. Uh, she says, it's very confusing to be so many different sizes in a day. And he says, it isn't. And she says, rather than saying, oh, oh, okay, yeah, m maybe it's not. You know, she does not back down. She says, well, perhaps you haven't found it so yet. And then references him changing when he becomes a, uh, a butterfly. And won't he find it weird when he changes? And he says, no, not a bit. She says, well, perhaps your feelings may be different. All I know is that it would feel very queer to me. And that is like, if that's not a lesson in emotional intelligence, I don't know what is. Like, holding your own and holding on to yourself, whoever you are, uh, when somebody is saying no to you, and um, telling you, acting as though their experience, their opinion is the only way, that's the only correct answer, you say, your feelings might be different, but these are mine. I mean, wow. That's like, <laughs> that in it, in itself is such a big lesson in um <laughs> how to like I don't want to say how to argue with somebody but that is kind of what they're doing they're having a discussion about about what about changing and how that feels right that brings them back to him saying you who are you and um, says that the caterpillar is contemptuous when he says that. And they've, you know, obviously come back to the beginning of the conversation. So Alice uh, tries to shift direction, which I think is also kind of a dwat of her. You know, it's a it's an interesting tactic to try and flip things. So she says, I think you ought to tell me who you are first. He says, why? Um, and she doesn't really like that response. It doesn't seem like they're, you know, they've reached a stalemate in the conversation. She turns and leaves. She doesn't say anything. She doesn't say goodbye. She doesn't huff off. She doesn't, uh, pretend to go and then not go she leaves he calls her back so she goes and he says keep your temper <laughs> which obviously pisses her off <laughs> and she says is that all and this is i mean is this is like such a modern um 
issue that I see on social media all the time is uh, don't tell like angry people to calm down because that'll piss them off more. So that feels like a <laughs> keep your temper, said the caterpillar. Is that all? said Alice, swallowing down her anger as well as she could. Even though her anger is um, justified to some extent, right? He's really being annoying. So he says no. And this is where we have the first... No, uh, sorry. It's not the first moment of silence. Actually, the, the first silence is when they is when they come upon each other. When she kind of approaches the mushroom... You know, uh, whatever. She sees him sitting up there. And they sit in silence until he speaks. And um, they sit in silence again. And he just puffs away on his hookah. And it's like, I love that. You know, people are so, and me included, you know, are so unwilling to just like sit in silence. Especially when things are uncomfortable. When there's tension. Uh, There's such a need to fill the silence and so that this conversation allows for it a couple of times is uh it's just really interesting that interaction i feel like uh should be studied in psychology books it may be i didn't uh <laughs> i didn't look that up okay so then we transition into the poem you are old father william before we before we head into that, because that has background. Now, um, in the nineteen fifty one Disney version, the caterpillar. This conversation is completely different, right? And that is mainly because the caterpillar in the nineteen fifty one Disney movie is angry. Everything that he says is angry, and or snippy, or you know. And of course, you do see that and obviously this caterpillar is not being friendly to Alice right but I wouldn't say that I've gotten the impression that he's angry it's um clearly a tense there's tension in the conversation but they you know of course for the cartoon they're gonna kind of take it um amp it up a little bit where this might work in a book it uh it doesn't work as well in a kid's cartoon, right? And so I don't know if this is maybe... This was a funny overlap in terms of um, misadaptations that I thought was interesting. So they've, they've amped up the caterpillar's anger for the screen, I guess, for an American version of this English work, right? And it made me think of the scene in Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. And if you're a Harry Potter person, I think you know what I'm going to say. It's the scene where um, Harry's name has come out of the Goblet of Fire. It wasn't supposed to. It's a fourth name. There's only supposed to be three. He gets kind of whisked away to a back room, at least in the movie. I can't remember that all that part in the book. He gets taken away to a back room And uh, all the teachers come in, or a couple of the teachers come in, and in the book, Dumbledore goes up to Harry and says, I'm not sure what adverb is used or adjective is used, 
you know, calmly or <laughs> quietly, you know, or there's no kind of implication that anything <laughs> uproarious is happening. And he says, Harry, did you put your name in the Goblet of Fire? And then in the movie version, you know, Harry practically gets like slammed into a wall and Dumbledore comes charging after him, like grabbing him by the collar and saying, Harry, did you put your name in the Goblet of Fire? So again, it's like, that's a Warner Brothers movie, right? It's this American movie that interprets an English book and an English character into this like really amped up, you know, high tension scene. We want anger. We want emotions, you know, and that is like, so not the English way. So I find it funny that these are two iconic characters whose dispositions were really misinterpreted for um, for an American viewing audience. I know that, you know, of course, uh, both Alice in Wonderland and Goblet of Fire are like international viewing, but it's like, you know who they had in mind when they made those movies, okay? <laughs> That's why they called it Sorcerer's Stone and not Philosopher's Stone, the first movie. You know what I mean? I'm sorry to say it. Okay, so that's, I think that's all my thoughts on the first, oh no, I'm sorry, one more thought, you know, uh, something else that I thought was, I don't, if you've ever smoked a hookah, they take forever to set up, I, I guess unless you're very good at it, right, so the the caterpillar has obviously come out to like his regular smoke spot, right, <laughs> he's got the hookah set up on the mushroom he doesn't even take the hookah with him when he goes this is clearly a spot that he's coming back to regularly to smoke smoke what you know <laughs> and um he's just trying to like chill right he's just trying to chill and vibe as the kids say and this little white girl has to come up and now this guy who just wants to relax it now he has to like help this little girl through her identity crisis and if you are a smoker a weed smoker and you have like your regular smoke spot I can only imagine that you might react the same way as the caterpillar I'm not even sure <laughs> I know the caterpillar is not smoking weed, right? That's not what people typically think of, like, with hookah. It's mostly tobacco. I know you can't smoke weed with it, but... It's like... <laughs> I can imagine a smoker being, like... First of all, like, white guys who smoke weed... Uh, you know, like almost always like want to challenge you on things and contradict you you know Alice is clearly this is the most contradicted she's ever been in her life she's clearly never taken like psychology 101 at a liberal arts college when you've got like the one guy who has to play devil's advocate <laughs> the devil does not need an advocate by the way just life advice devil doesn't need an advocate okay uh so I just, you know, I can, I can totally understand it in that perspective, why the caterpillar 
is so like monotone and sometimes annoyed with her in her responses because he's like high as hell like trying to figure out what this girl is talking about like you've changed a lot I don't see what you're talking about (laughs) he's like you can't just tell me who you are you gotta tell me like your life story about all these different changes just tell me who you are (laughs) oh god <laughs> but at least when he leaves, she's not like annoyed, you know. <laughs> All right, so um, we'll move on to you are old, Father William. So this has kind of some interesting notes. Um, so you are old, Father William. <sighs> this this is gonna get a little confusing. In in. The movie, the 1951 movie, the beginning of, oh God, where do I start with that? Alice is in the caucus race. They do have a quick caucus race scene. After that, she meets Tweedledee and Tweedledum in the movie. Tweedledee and Tweedledum are in Through the Looking Glass. They're not in the first one, but I think it was smart that they brought it into this movie. It's kind of a comprehensive look at Um, you know, incorporates ideas from both uh, books. I think that was smart of them. They just put it into one. So she meets Tweedledee and Tweedledum. They perform uh, The Walrus and the Carpenter for her. And then they finish. And she's trying to get away from them. And they start to perform Your Old Father William. So there is reference to it. And I really love that Disney really tried to respect the source material, so they incorporated a lot of bits of actual dialogue from the book, and even the dialogue between Alice and the Caterpillar, despite the tone being different in the movie, it is very accurate in terms of the lines that are said. Now, uh, in the book, Alice references that she already tried to say how doth the little busy bee she said that back she said that to herself back in the hall of doors here uh in the movie when she's in front of the caterpillar she starts to recite how doth the little busy bee he uh i think he i think i watch a scene he like interrupts her and says he'll just do it and he uses his smoke right the smoke is very uh like a character unto itself and he recites it as how doth the little crocodile that's it and i can't remember now but i think that may be how it comes out in this book so that is um some you know that's kind of the tie-in between the movie and the uh the book between those two parody poems another little interesting thing in the book he says repeat you are old Father Williams. In the movie, the caterpillar says, recite, you are old Father Williams. And there is actually a distinction there that reciting was something that was done at parties, but repeating was something that was done in school. So some little <laughs> movie movie info and uh, book uh, what a time period kind of info. So I would say after... Um, gosh, we're already at 40 minutes. After the poem, um, the conversation kind of 
is coming to a close, I would say that the most interesting dialogue, you know, has passed. They talk about her height again. There's some silence again, which I I really love that. I love that there was a lot of silence incorporated into it. She waits for him to speak and they just sit there in silence if he doesn't speak. And, um, he decides to get off. He leaves his hookah, obviously, because he'll come back another time. He's done with sitting in silence with her. He's not going to get much peace and quiet on his, uh, smoke break. And so he just starts to, um, slither off, crawl off. I don't know what you would say a caterpillar does. And he references that one side of the mushroom make her grow taller, one side makes her grow shorter, and she thinks to herself, one side of what, the other side of what, in the movie, she says it out loud, and he, like, he's turned into a butterfly in the movie, and he comes down and literally screams in her face of the mushroom, or the mushroom, of course. And in the book, she just thinks it to herself, and then he says, uh, of the mushroom, out loud. And apparently this is because, you know, like in the 19th century, they were very into this like woo-woo spirituality. They loved that kind of seance stuff, you know. And um, apparently Carol did all, did, uh, he, he didn't believe in spiritualism, but he did believe in the reality of ESP and psychokinesis. So this is a little nod to one of those <laughs> I'm not really mind reading at least. So she, uh, you know, she nibbles, she grabs some mushrooms, she puts her arms as far around the mushroom as she can and rips off two sides and she nibbles a little bit of one side and then her chin hits her foot because she's obviously nibbled the, the shrinking side and she's continues. So she's, and I, they don't have a picture for this and I find that really interesting because I can't like picture what it would be like to have literally no body and then your head and your head is hitting your feet your chin is hitting your feet so I picture it as like normal size feet normal size head no body you know <laughs> and so she, it says she struggled to kind of get her mouth open, which you wouldn't think, but if you press really hard on your chin and then try and open your mouth, you really can't. Like, press really, really hard. You really have to tip the top of your head back in order to open your mouth. So I could actually see why she struggled to get the other mushroom in there. So she shoots up. Now, they even make reference in the notes about whether this mushroom is psychedelic or not. And um, based on the drawings, they can they kind of conclude the the um, illustration by Tennille that it's not psychedelic. It's a normal edible mushroom. Um, however, that said, the kind of very weird body morphing that goes on in the you know after what happens after she eats the mushroom. I've never taken mushrooms, but it's like. You could see why people might make that connection because it's like she either has no body and it's just a head and feet or as this chapter says, <clears throat> her neck becomes so long and bendy 
that she can curve it down into a graceful zigzag. So it really creates this idea of like, like a serpent. And I love that mental imagery because it creates this like idea of almost like a weightless head, you know, that really kind of upon this like reading that really kind of tripped me out a little bit because it's like it almost doesn't make sense like I mean first of all where are her vertebrae right or like her vertebra have changed so that she's they're like a snake you know and the fact that she can hold her head completely upright to the point that she doesn't even realize that she can move her neck like that until she actually tries to is like so weird you know but it's like weird and funny and so she has this very funny carolian dialogue where um it's kind of this back and forth she's upset another character and i love This is kind of an inconsequential scene, I would say. But um, the dialogue is so... I just love this dialogue. I love this... The way that the dialogue is spoken in the Disney movie. It is really... uh, You know, of course, I was thinking about that the whole time when I was reading it out loud for the recording. Because it's just such a fun... I love it when she says, I'm, I'm a little girl. <laughs> just hilarious. And the pigeon just kind of freaking out. And it's so funny to think of moms <laughs> also being crazy freaks back then. And I say that with a lot of love. I know a lot of moms, you know, just kind of being <laughs> very motherly even back then. Uh, but I wouldn't say that this dialogue reveals a lot about Alice certainly not like what we had just heard however I do like that it's another character who deals with her directly and oh actually it what it does bring up is a different question which is what are you and this Alice can answer this she can't she still can't doesn't answer who are you But she can answer, what are you? She says, I'm a little girl. I'm not a serpent. So she knows that much about herself, right? Um, And I think that's kind of an... I think that reveals something interesting, doesn't it? It's kind of like what I was saying earlier is like, who you are is different than what you do or what you are. Like, who... You know, the things that would describe you on paper are different than who you are as a person. That's a much more complex answer. And it often does change a lot in a day, doesn't it? Sometimes you wake up in one mood and you end the day in a completely different mood. And saying who you are at any given moment, it's changed so much in one day. But what you are, you can always answer what you are. So I really love this chapter is like perfectly constructed in my opinion. I'm getting like stares from people, by the way. Uh, This is a perfectly constructed chapter. I love it. 
It is so well constructed. I find its placement in the book is wonderful. Um, you know, the timing, we just... I have been saying up until this point that I really wanted something that felt like it was just offering more depth, something more interesting. I wanted to be engaged more with the people of Wonderland or with Alice. I wanted to see them engaging with each other in a different way than just these kind of offensive conversations or where she's just kind of a, a passive character. Um, and here it's like she's really actively participating and engaging with the world. And they're engaging really actively with her. And um, so this chapter just gave me like everything that I was hoping for. And I'm even though she's not really referencing things that have already happened, she's mainly focused at this point on how much she's changing. She's changing a lot. Uh, in size and that's leaving her feeling very like unsure of herself right and um, so that's uh, mainly what she's thinking about I got a little distracted in my brain <laughs> my brain just emptied out for a second And I had been really looking for, like, some character development just to see Alice kind of, how are these things going to change her as she goes forward? And I do think that this is the moment where the development starts to happen. So even when it comes to the mushroom bits that she has now, and these kind of become, I think, going forward, I will have to say, but I think those kind of play an important role, uh, that these become a little, like, weapon for her. So she's gained, <laughs> she's gained a power. She can control more her size. And that's, be that's been something that's giving her this real um, lack of identity, at least partly, right, is that she, she doesn't even have control over what size she is. And that's something obviously that's very important to her. So now she's got these two little bits of mushroom that are going to help her um, navigate this world, navigate Wonderland better, um, because she clearly needs to be different sizes at times. And interestingly at the end of the chapter something that has bothered me you know and bothered me you know it's been something where I'm upon closer inspection I'm like oh my god like why is this girl doing this is that she doesn't think ahead so she'll just kind of wander into a situation eat or drink something without knowing what it's going to do and just like she's deals with consequences you know so funnily enough at the end of the chapter she uses this new power this tool that she has now these mushroom bits she sees that there's a a four what is it a four foot house four foot high house she's at her normal little girl upper world above world height she says well it's not going to make sense for me to go up to this house at my height so i'm going to get myself down to nine inches high so that is like that's agency. That's 
her having control and power over her situation in the world. And maybe what this chapter shows us is that when you grapple with the questions of who you are and what you are, even if you don't come away with much of an answer, you might find that you have just saying it out loud, saying, I don't know who I am, that might give you more power than you think it will. You might be scared to say, I don't know who I am. I don't know what I am, or I am this. I know, I know what I am. I don't know who I am. But addressing those questions and sitting in silence with them, it might... Uh, it, it might give you, at least you've, you've said it now, at least you've said it out loud to yourself or to somebody else, and you've learned something about yourself that you don't know who you are. And there's that, you know? So at the end of the chapter, she does think ahead, right? She does uh, figure out, okay, I'm going to... I'm going to get myself to the right height, to nine inches high. So I, obviously, like, I just, this is a wonderful chapter to me. I think there, I think there must be something between the ego and the id with the whole conversation between Alice and the caterpillar. Uh, and I don't know if Carol would have had that, if he would have been intentional with that. Or if it would have just been something that he as a thoughtful person would have come up with as a good metaphor for things he was struggling with, you know? But it certainly is coming through as, you know, even if you just um, back away from the psychological element and you think of it as just a little girl dealing with the idea of growing up, which she referenced, uh when she was in the house and when she was in the rabbit's house and she was all grown up, there was that kind of funny wordplay with um, being a grown up and aging. So I think there is some concept of like, okay, like as a kid, you're inevitably going to change a lot. And, you know, who are you going to be when you're bigger you know? So that's really just a very exciting chapter to read. Still exciting after all these years. And as a final note, I did get an answer to the question that I had in the last episode, which was, do the animals in Wonderland know that eating and drinking things will make you get bigger or smaller and of course now we know that at least some of some of them know you know and we can maybe assume that the when they threw the rocks into the house that they knew they would turn into cakes and that that would make Alice grow smaller um so I'm really wondering if it seems like where we're at now is that this is like (laughs) this like totally turned a corner for me in terms of the book really. Uh, And it might just be that chapters three and four are kind of weaker chapters. Uh, But it's like this at this point is a story about 
a little girl finding agency over herself. And um, I definitely, like, understand why I liked this so much as a kid, you know. Uh, So that is, that's chapter five. What an exciting adventure. I enjoyed talking about this so much more without the notes. I felt much more free to just say what was on my mind. I hope that you enjoyed this episode. If you did, you can write me an email, you know, (laughs) and hopefully, you know, not using notes will help me put out the episodes quicker because we we are not, we're just getting to the halfway point of this book. So I kind of got to pick up the pace a little bit. I hope that you enjoyed the soccer noises in the background and that you will come back hopefully next week for chapter six and stick around for the reading after this. Thanks. Bye. Chapter five, advice from a caterpillar. The caterpillar and Alice looked at each other for some time in silence. At last, the caterpillar took the hookah out of its mouth and addressed her in a languid, sleepy voice. Who are you? said the caterpillar. This was not an encouraging opening for a conversation. Alice replied rather shyly, I I hardly know, sir, just at present. At least I knew who I was when I got up this morning, but I think I must have changed several times since then. What do you mean by that? said the caterpillar sternly. Explain yourself. I can't explain myself, I'm afraid, sir, said Alice, because I'm not myself, you see. I don't see, said the caterpillar. I'm afraid I can't put it more clearly, Alice replied very politely, for I can't understand it myself to begin with, and being so many different sizes in a day is very confusing. It isn't, said the caterpillar. Well, perhaps you haven't found it so yet, said Alice, but when you have to turn into a chrysalis, you will some day, you know, and then after that into a butterfly, I should think you'll feel it a little queer, won't you? Not a bit, said the caterpillar. Well, perhaps your feelings may be different, said Alice. All I know is it would feel very queer to me. You, said the caterpillar contemptuously, who are you? which brought them back again to the beginning of the conversation. Alice felt a little irritated at the caterpillars making such very short remarks, and she drew herself up and said very gravely, I think you ought to tell me who you are first. Why, said the caterpillar. Here was another puzzling question, and as Alice could not think of any good reason, and the caterpillar seemed to be in a very unpleasant state of mind, she turned away. Come back, the caterpillar called after her. I have something important to say. This sounded promising, certainly. Alice turned and came back again. Keep your temper, said the caterpillar. Is that all? said Alice, swallowing down her anger as well as she could. No, said the caterpillar. Alice thought she might as well wait as she had nothing else to do, and perhaps after all it might tell her something worth hearing. For some minutes it puffed away without speaking, but at last it unfolded its arms, took the hookah out of its mouth again, and said, 
So you think you're changed, do you? I'm afraid I am, sir, said Alice. I can't remember things as I used to, and I don't keep the same size for ten minutes together. Can't remember what things, said the caterpillar. Well, I've tried to say how doth the little busy bee, but it all came out different, Alice replied in a very melancholy voice. Repeat, you are old Father William, said the caterpillar. Alice folded her hands and began. You are old, Father William, the young man said, and your hair has become very white. And yet you incessantly stand on your head. Do you think at your age it is right? In my youth, Father William replied to his son, I feared it might injure the brain. But now that I am perfectly sure I have none, why I do it again and again. You are old, said the youth, as I mentioned before, and have grown most uncommonly fat. Yet you turned a back somersault in at the door. Pray, what is the reason of that? In my youth, said the sage, as he shook his gray locks, I kept all my limbs very supple. By the use of this ointment, one shilling the box, allow me to sell you a couple. You are old, said the youth, and your jaws are too weak for anything tougher than suet. Yet you finish the goose with the bones and the beak. Pray, how did you manage to do it? In my youth, said his father, I took to the law and argued each case with my wife, and the muscular strength which it gave to my jaw has lasted the rest of my life. You are old, said the youth. One would hardly suppose that your eye was as steady as ever, yet you balanced an eel on the end of your nose. What made you so awfully clever? I have answered three questions, and that is enough, said his father. Don't give yourself airs. Do you think I can listen all day to such stuff? Be off, or I'll kick you downstairs. That is not said right, said the caterpillar. Not quite right, I'm afraid, said Alice timidly. Some of the words have got altered. It is wrong from beginning to end, said the caterpillar decidedly, and there was silence for some minutes. The caterpillar was the first to speak. What size do you want to be? it asked. Oh, I'm not particular as to size, Alice replied hastily. Only one doesn't like changing so often, you know. I don't know, said the caterpillar. Alice said nothing. She had never been so much contradicted in all her life before, and she felt that she was losing her temper. Are you content now? said the caterpillar. Well, I should like to be a little larger, sir, if you wouldn't mind, said Alice. Three inches is such a wretched height to be. It is a very good height indeed, said the caterpillar angrily, rearing itself upright as it spoke. It was exactly three inches high. But I'm not used to it, pleaded poor Alice in a piteous tone. And she thought to herself, I wish the creatures here wouldn't be so easily offended. You'll get used to it in time, said the caterpillar, and it put the hookah into its mouth and began smoking again. This time Alice waited patiently until it chose to speak again. In a minute or two the caterpillar took the hookah out of its mouth and yawned once or twice and shook itself. Then it got down off the mushroom and crawled away into the grass, merely remarking as it went, One side will make you grow taller, and the other side will make you grow shorter. One side of what? The other side of what? thought Alice to herself. Of the mushroom, said the caterpillar, just as if she had asked it out loud. And in another moment it was out of sight. 
Alice remained looking thoughtfully at the mushroom for a minute, trying to make out which were the two sides of it. And as it was perfectly round, she found this a very difficult question. However, at last she stretched her arms round it as far as they would go, and broke off a bit of the edge with each hand. And now which is which, she said to herself, and nibbled a little of the right hand bit to try the effect. The next moment she felt a violent blow underneath her chin. It had struck her foot. She was a good deal frightened by this very sudden change, but she felt that there was no time to be lost as she was shrinking rapidly. So she set to work at once to eat some of the other bit. Her chin was pressed so closely against her foot that there was hardly room to open her mouth, but she did it at last and managed to swallow a morsel of the left-hand bit. "'Come, my head's free at last,' said Alice in a tone of delight, which changed into alarm in another moment, when she found that her shoulders were nowhere to be found. All she could see when she looked down was an immense length of neck, which seemed to rise like a stalk out of a sea of green leaves that lay far below her. "'What can all that green stuff be?' said Alice. "'And where have my shoulders got to?' And, oh, my poor hands, how is it I can't see you? She was moving them about as she spoke, but no result seemed to follow except little shaking among the distant green leaves. As there seemed to be no chance of getting her hands up to her head, she tried to get her head down to them and was delighted to find that her neck would bend about easily in any direction like a serpent. She had just succeeded in curving it down into a graceful zigzag and was going to dive in among the leaves, which she found to be nothing but the tops of the trees under which she had been wandering, when a sharp hiss made her draw back in a hurry. A large pigeon had flown into her face and was beating her violently with its wings. Serpent! screamed the pigeon. I'm not a serpent, said Alice indignantly. Let me alone. Serpent, I say again repeated the pigeon, but in a more subdued tone, and added with a kind of sob, I've tried every way, but nothing seems to suit them. I haven't the least idea what you're talking about, said Alice. I've tried the roots of trees, and I've tried banks, and I've tried hedges, the pigeon went on without attending to her, but those serpents, there's no pleasing them. Alice was more and more puzzled, but she thought there was no use in saying anything more till the pigeon had finished. As if it wasn't trouble enough hatching the eggs, said Pigeon. But I must be on the lookout for serpents night and day. Why, I haven't had a wink of sleep these three weeks. I'm very sorry you've been annoyed, said Alice, who was beginning to see its meaning. And just as I'd taken the highest tree in the wood, continued the Pigeon, raising its voice to a shriek, and just as I was thinking I should be free of them at last, they must needs come wriggling down from the sky. Ugh, serpent! But I'm not a serpent, I tell you, said Alice. I'm a, I'm a, well, what are you, said the pigeon. I can see you're trying to invent something. I, I'm a little girl, said Alice rather doubtfully, as she remembered the number of changes she had gone through that day. A likely story indeed, said the pigeon in a tone of the deepest contempt. I've seen a good many little girls in my time, but never one with such a neck as that. No, no, you're a serpent, and there's no use denying it. I suppose you'd be telling me next that you never tasted an egg. 
I have tasted eggs, certainly, said Alice, who was a very truthful child. But little girls eat eggs quite as much as serpents do, you know. I don't believe it, said the pigeon, but if they do, why then they're a kind of serpent, that's all I can say. This was such a new idea to Alice that she was quite silent for a minute or two, which gave the pigeon the opportunity of adding, You're looking for eggs, I know that well enough. And what does it matter to me whether you're a little girl or a serpent? It matters a good deal to me, said Alice hastily, but I'm not looking for eggs as it happens, and if I was, I shouldn't want yours. I don't like them raw. Well, be off then said the pigeon in a sulky tone as it settled down again into its nest. Alice crouched down among the trees as well as she could, for her neck kept getting entangled among the branches, and every now and then she had to stop and untwist it. After a while she remembered that she still held the pieces of mushroom in her hands, and she set to work very carefully, nibbling first at one and then at the other, and growing sometimes taller and sometimes shorter, until she had succeeded in bringing herself down to her usual height. It was so long since she had been anything near the right size that it felt quite strange at first, but she got used to it in a few minutes and began talking to herself as usual. Come, there's half my plan done now. How puzzling all these changes are. I'm never sure what I'm going to be from one minute to another. However, I've got back to my right size. The next thing is to get into that beautiful garden. How is that to be done, I wonder? As she said this, she came suddenly upon an open place with a little house in it, about four feet high. Whoever lives there, thought Alice, it'll never do to come upon them this size. Why, I should frighten them out of their wits. So she began nimbling at the right-hand bit again, and did not venture to go near the house till she had brought herself down to nine inches high. 